Welcome to Friendly Words, the sermon podcast of Pratt Friends Church in Pratt, Kansas. The message you're about to hear was originally preached at Pratt Friends Church on Sunday, December 12th, 2021. It focuses on Jesus' patience with his followers and his persistence in getting them ready to be the leaders of the church when he's gone. The message to all who will listen is Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is as patient with you and me and as persistent in teaching us as he was with the Twelve when he walked the earth. Now, here is Pastor Mike Neifert. All right, let's uh, pray that God would speak to us. God, thank you that you are here and that you desire to speak to us. I pray that your word would accomplish everything that you desire and that we would leave this place knowing that your spirit has given us an assignment for the week, given us strength for the week. God, help us to uh, know how to live for you because of what your word says to us and what your spirit says. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Mr. Timish was my fifth grade band director. He did not look that old when I was in fifth grade. <laughs> this man helped me to decide which instrument to try out. At his suggestion, I tro- chose trombone. Uh, under his tutelage, I learned each position on the slide. First clear in, second about this far out, third at the back of the bell, front of the bell, whichever, this side of the bell, and fourth, just a little bit on the other side of the bell, fifth, sixth, and seventh position, which I could not reach as a fifth grader, I'm just telling you. Uh, and he taught us which notes, uh, the trombone section taught us which notes went with each position. And thankfully, in fifth grade, most, uh, most notes do not require seventh position. In fact, even now, I hardly ever have to play seventh position because you just don't play in keys that have that. That's how it works. Anyway, I was, was I great at trombone in fifth grade? No, I was not. I missed notes. I chose the wrong position sometimes, completely wrong position. I chose the right position sometimes, but not quite in the right place. So it's just a little fraction off. And, and uh, if you've been an adult at an elementary school band concert, you know what I'm talking about. There are more than a few close but not quite there notes hit by all those involved. Interestingly, I don't recall Mr. Timish ever yelling at us. I don't remember anything. When we weren't quite right, he patiently taught sections, their parts, and took time over and over again to show students how new notes were created and how they were to most likely be sounded correctly. And while I was under his direction, I tried to do everything that Mr. Timish said to do. When he pointed out mistakes, I did my best to fix them. And guess what? I got better. My trombone playing went from sounding like a dying cow to resembling a mildly stuffed up nasally donkey to mimicking a healthy enough humpback whale in both sound quality and volume. To this day, I am thankful for Mr. Timish. He started me down a path toward more or less mastery of an instrument which I wasn't even sure I would like playing. His patience and persistence created space for me to learn and improve. 
Years after I left elementary school and continued playing music in middle school and high school and even on into college, though I wasn't there formally to do that in college, I was afforded a chance to meet up with Mr. Timish again. He was judging a local middle school solo contest and somehow I heard he was in the area. I got myself to the school where the festival was taking place and located Mr. Timish's assigned room and stepped in just as a young trombonist was getting ready to play his solo. There were many, many wrong notes hit by that soloist, but when the young man finished, Mr. Timish heaped praise on the beginner before him and offered the same suggestions that he had given me years before. When the feedback session was over and the young man, ste man stepped out of the room, there was just a short moment between solos, and I walked over to Mr. Timish and introduced myself, stuck out my hand with a smile, not sure if he'd remember me, and thanked him for the part he played in making music a joy for me. This encounter lasted maybe a minute, maybe two at most, but it was worth it to me to acknowledge the good things this man had done in my life. Patience and persistence. These are, these are the character traits of every great teacher, uh, every successful coach, every good parent. No student or athlete or child is going to grow in knowledge or skill or character without a whole lot of trial and error, and the adults who correct gently and redirect and re-instruct repeatedly are most often rewarded for their efforts with mature kids who are kind and able and who know their stuff and who years later will pass on what they've learned to the students and athletes and kids that they have influence over. Can you, can you name a teacher like Mr. Timish in your life that helped you in some area, that helped you to grow as a, into a maturer person, and who through patient, persistent instruction helped you to grow? Men and women like that hold a special place in your heart, don't they? Aren't you thankful that they didn't give up on you? Well, as we read and talk about Mark chapter 8 this morning, I think we're going to see great patience and not a little persistence on as Jesus interacts with his disciples. These 12 who've spent quite a lot of time with him at this point are still stumbling and bumbling a lot. They get things wrong often, but sometimes they don't. When they mess up, Jesus gently chides them, corrects them, rebukes them, whatever word you want to use there. When they do the right thing, he encourages them and says, yes, that's the way. You got it right. Patience and persistence. I want you to watch for those two things as the story unfolds this morning. I didn't get a chance to ask anyone to read Mark chapter 8 for us this morning, so I'm going to go and do it unless somebody just wants to jump up and, I want to do it, I want to do it. Anybody? Nope, okay. So, as you listen to me read, uh, don't forget to pay attention to what the Spirit may be saying to you. Don't miss his personal message for you. It may be different than what I have to emphasize this morning. So, Jesus is calling you to be a, a disciple just as he was these guys that we're going to encounter in this chapter. So, learn from him as he speaks to them. Know that he cares for you as much as he did for this gang of misfits or seeming misfits. All right. You ready? Mark chapter 8 starts this way. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, 
I have compassion on these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember, when I broke the five, five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, Do you still not understand? They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? 
If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So did you catch glimpses of Jesus' patience and persistence? Did you hear God's voice? Is he speaking to you about his patience with you? Is he calling you to be more persistent in some area of your life? Think on those things. A couple of pages back, a little over halfway through Mark chapter 6, Jesus fed 5,000 plus people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Everyone in the crowd ate and was satisfied, and there were leftovers. When, he talked about that, when we talked about that story a few weeks ago, we noted Jesus' wisdom in allowing the twelve to come to the end of themselves so that they could know how, God, how great God was. How would they know God was able to do more than they could ask or imagine if they didn't see him show up when they were absolutely powerless to act? Smart move. Did these guys get it? Did they learn? From what we have here at the beginning of Mark chapter 8, it would seem that they didn't get it. It appears that they learned nothing. I mean, the scenario set before them uh, in this, the first 10 verses of this week's reading is almost identical to that which we observed in chapter 6. The number of people is less by a thousand, but otherwise there's little difference. And the response of the guys who had, been back, had backstage passes at the feeding of the 5,000 is still not very faith-filled. Jesus brings up the people's need here in Mark chapter 8, and he says to his followers in verses 2 and 3, he says, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. In my mind, Jesus pauses here to see what Peter or Thomas or Judas will do with this information. Will they volunteer their bread and fish immediately, or will they speak again of their lack? You heard what Mark wrote. They're right back on the we can't do anything about it soapbox. Poor little old me. Haven't got any resources. Their response is almost identical to their earlier reaction to Jesus when Jesus said, you feed them. Seeing they haven't learned yet that God is more than able to meet their needs, Jesus patiently asks them how much bread they've got. They count their meager store and reply, seven loaves. Is that enough bread to feed 4,000 people? Seven loaves of bread? Nope, not even close. If you and I are on our own, we're, going, we're not going to satisfy that many folks with seven loaves of bread and a few small fish. We're going to need two or 3,000 loaves of bread. This is why I'm not a caterer. <laughs> I would have supply chain issues and my purchasing power would not, well, I, I don't want to feed 4,000 people unless they're paying for the food. And even then, I don't want to do it. Anyway. Jesus doesn't even bat an eye. That's, he, he, he's not looking at the amount of bread before him. This is key. He is not looking at how many loaves of bread he has. He's looking at the Father who created all things and has no trouble whatsoever at taking bread and making more. 
He's the one, God is the one who spoke the universe into existence. Surely he can handle a little creation of bread. And so Jesus looks up to heaven and he gives thanks and offers the puny ration that, he, that he's got, the puny rations that he's got to the people. And miracle of miracles, the people eat. And both times it says, and are satisfied. You ever have that? We just recently had Thanksgiving. And weren't you satisfied at the end of that meal? Maybe a little miserable because you ate too much. But I don't, I'm, we're not gonna, I'm not judging you. Just mentioning these people were satisfied. They had enough to eat. Seven loaves of bread and a few fish feed 4,000. And just as before, there are leftovers from seven loaves and a few small fish. Do the 12 get it this time? Has Jesus' patience and persistence paid off? Nope. The next episode in the bread saga goes, shows that they... It shows their continued ignorance. So skip over the boat ride to Dalmanutha and the Pharisees' demand for the sign. You can read all those things and take in Jesus' response anytime you'd like. It's in verses 11 and 12. The part of the text that I want to focus on for a bit now is what we have in verses 13 to 21. Back at sea, an issue arises. There's not enough bread to go around in the boat. Between the 13 aboard, aboard, there's one loaf. Is a single loaf of bread enough to feed a baker's dozen? Not under normal circumstances. Not, not to the point that they would be satisfied. Everyone's going to be a little bit hungry when the bread's gone. One loaf is not enough. And we'll come back to this predicament. We'll come back to this predicament in a moment. Jesus, completely unconcerned about the food situation, but distinctly disturbed by his recent discussion with the Pharisees, speaks up in verse 15, and he says, Be careful, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Is he talking about the shortage of bread? Not at all, but that's what his shipmates think he's referring to. They're looking at each other, trying to figure out who it was to blame for the short supply of snacks. Who was supposed to have packed the picnic basket? At this point, I think Jesus' patience is wearing just a little thin. Mine would be. Why in the world are they worried about bread? If you've been paying attention, you've likely deduced that one loaf is likely more than enough when Jesus is nearby to feed 13 people. If five loaves can feed 5,000 and seven can feed 4,000, probably one can feed 13. Jesus lays these facts out for the pupils. He reminds them of, of the basketfuls or baskets full of leftovers. Then sounding a little frazzled, he asks in verse 21, do you not, do you still not understand? Mark leaves the question hanging. No explanation, no further info. Thankfully, we have the other Gospels that tell us that Jesus said a few other things. So in Matthew, if you recall, uh, when we covered Matthew chapter 16 a couple months ago, Jesus tells his disciples, uh, tells us that the disciples get it after Jesus chews them out for thinking it was, real, it was about bread. This is what he writes in Matthew 16, verse 12. 
Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. In Luke's account of Jesus' life, we have a similar warning in a completely different context. There's no boat at all. The first verse of Luke chapter 12 reads thusly, Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Here's what we learn from all this. Jesus wants his followers to watch out. He wants them to steer clear of the demands of the Pharisees for a sign from heaven. He wants them to note when the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees stray far from the truth. He intends for them to see the pretending of the Pharisees for what it is and avoid it in their lives, the hypocrisy. What Jesus is talking about is not related to bread at all. He's patiently shown his disciples that the number of loaves doesn't matter if God's part of the equation that they're still pointing fingers and blaming each other for not bringing enough to eat on this journey means that they're still not even getting the basics. How are they ever going to understand the harder things if they can't put two and two together on the food issue? Jesus doesn't give up on them, though. He asks the do you still not understand question and keeps on leading, keeps on teaching, keeps on investing in the lives of these men, these numbskulls, that's my word, not his, and I put myself in that category as well. Patience and persistence. Jesus is both, has both in abundance. He's overflowing with long suffering. He repeats himself and points the way and explains until they get it, and they do get it. Skip down to verse 27. Let's reread that section which begin the section that begins there. We'll read from verse 27 down through verse 29. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked them, "Who do people say I am?" They replied, "Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets." "But what about you?" he asked. "Who do you say I am?" Peter answered, "You are the Messiah. This is a huge moment. Maybe the twelve don't quite grasp that God can take care of your lack of bread thing, but at least one of them knows that he's the one that the prophets promised. He's the Savior. While Mark is silent on the issue, as is Luke, Matthew tells us this truth was given to Peter by God, the Father. Jesus Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 17 confirm God's revelation. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. In this moment, Peter, after so many months of living life with Jesus, is spiritually tuned in enough for at least a minute or two or three to be able to hear directly from God and boldly, boldly say what God's given him to say. This is good because he's going to need to hear God clearly and obey God as boldly in the coming years. After Jesus returns to heaven after his crucifixion and resurrection, which is coming despite Peter's protests, 
Peter is going to put the receive revelation and pass it on to others thing into practice. And thousands are going to hear his voice and the Spirit's going to use that to bring thousands to faith in Jesus. It's important that he learns this. One more thing before we go on, before we go home. In verse 33, Jesus rebukes Peter. He speaks the truth that Satan is behind Peter's desire to protect Jesus from death. And then he says this at the end of, verse, of the verse, verse 33. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. In reality, this is the lesson all of us need to learn. The message, the message God is through his written word and still small voice of his spirit speaking patiently and persisting, persistently into our hearts. It's not about how much bread you have, but about the one who supplies all bread. He is the one who is with you at all times. Trust him, obey him, let him do his work in and through you. Patience and persistence we see both in Jesus as he interacts with his disciples. Remembering that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, we can know that he's patient with us. And he will persist in teaching us even when we keep getting it wrong like those other numbskulls that we point fingers at. Are you thankful for God's patience with you? Yeah, me too. I am eternally grateful for his persistence in leading me. If he gave up on me the first time I messed things up and spoke truth, or spoke truth which wasn't quite true, I've done that a few times, he would have given up and then finished with me years and years ago. You too? Yeah. So let's respond to Jesus now. In the next few minutes, as we allow for silent worship and private examination of our lives, let Jesus speak into your heart this truth. I'm not done with you yet. If you struggle to believe that, I pray God will convince you of that truth today. Listen to your patient, persistent Savior as we pause. Thank him, bless him, and listen. God, you inspired Paul to put patience right at the beginning of his description of love. Love is patient, love is kind. I'm so grateful that your love is greater than ours, that you don't give up on us and that you persist in trying to draw us to you. That you're patient when we get things wrong and continue to teach the same lessons over and over until we get it. God, I pray that you'd encourage your people. Encourage them as they follow you, as they listen to you, and as they get things right and get things wrong, that you continue to draw them to you and to draw the world to you through them. 
and through your Spirit's work in them, in us. God, thanks for this church, for your church. I pray, God, that as we celebrate Jesus' arrival on the scene to save us, that we wouldn't forget that he did come not just to be a baby, but to grow and to become a man so that he could die on a cross for us. Help us not to forget that. I pray, God, that we would be a blessing to all those we come in contact with this week that our voice would speak good news to others. God, keep doing your work in us until you take us home. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I can think of no better way to end our service today than by letting Paul's words to the believers in Philippi wash over our soul. So hear God's word to you from Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. This was Paul's prayer for the church. It's my prayer for you. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with you. Pray with joy. Sorry. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So, may God speak to you and teach you and lead you throughout this coming week. May you enjoy the view as he does his work through you. God bless you all. I am thankful that God has given me a God-following group of people to be a part of. Amen? We hope you have been encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. If you want to hear each week's message, be sure to subscribe to Friendly Words in your podcast app. May God bless you as you follow Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit.